Hello and welcome to the audio summary for the issue dated the 16th to the 22nd of September. I'm Oda Riska. This week we'll discuss the upcoming elections for a new Director General at WHO, we cover an article on a potential new and affordable diagnostic test for tuberculosis, an editorial on healthcare in the US, and a public health paper on the relationship between politics and health. In a seminar, Dr. Peter Roy Byrne states that many people with panic disorder might not be getting the treatment they need. Only 19-40% to 40% of patients are estimated to receive standard care. Panic disorder is quite common and affects up to 5% of people at some point in their life. It can often be disabling and can lead to an increased use of health care, absence from work and reduced workplace productivity. Even though antidepressants and cognitive behavioural therapy are effective, less than half those in need receive treatment. Difficulties with detection and diagnosis, uncertainties about where and how to get help, and concerns about the cost of care are all barriers to effective care. Last week, the 13 candidates for the role of Director General at WHO were announced. The Lancet will be closely following the elections. Here to discuss the candidates and this week's coverage are editor Richard Horton and Hannah Brown. So Hannah, this week we cover all 13 candidates who've been nominated to be the next Director General of WHO. They come from a really broad range of regions of the world. Who's going to win? Well, Richard, that's a very difficult question. The problem is the outcome of the election race is very difficult to predict. The process is difficult because all the votes for the next Director General candidate are made by executive board members acting on the priorities of their government. There are 34 executive board members taken from a selection of WHO's 192 member states, and they rotate every three years. So it's difficult to know what the priorities of individual governments will be. There are two frontrunners that have been widely cited in the media as being good candidates. Margaret Chan is one and Shigeru Omi, nominated by Japan, is the other. They've both been really prominent to do with pandemic influenza and avian flu, so that could be behind their current popularity. But regarding the rest of the field, it's just too early to say who's the real frontrunner. It seems to me that Europe's gone completely crazy. I mean, they've nominated, what is it, five candidates? And Africa's only got one candidate. I mean, it seems to me completely imbalanced. There are a lot of European candidates, and that's actually a question I put to the candidates, asking them whether it was a wise decision for so many European candidates to be in the race together. The answer I got most commonly from each of the candidates was that it could only improve the debate and election campaign surrounding the WHO Director General. Having so many people putting forward different policy points can only make the executive board's decision easier. Well, now, when it comes to the executive board, the whole thing is smoke and mirrors. I mean, electing the Pope is actually more transparent than electing Director General of WHO. Isn't it about time we had a secret ballot or we had massive campaigns, public debates, television shows with all the candidates having to make their statements? I mean, the way we do it at the moment is just complete madness, isn't it? It is. It, it still is a very secretive process. I mean, this is actually the first year that WHO has released the long list of candidates, so we're lucky to have this much information. But from a journalistic point of view, it's a very difficult race to cover because most of the decisions go on behind closed doors. It will be in a three-day meeting between the 6th and 8th of November where the executive board members get together, interview their short list of five candidates and work up through a series of secret ballots down to the one that they all agree on. Um, that person will then be put forward to a special one-day World Health Assembly vote and then the next direction will be confirmed. 
Yeah, I was talking with somebody this morning about uh, the whole election process, somebody who was one of the executive directors under Gruhal and Brundtland uh, a few years ago. And he was pointing out that the particular way the election will be done really could end up electing the weakest candidate. Because you have to remember that each executive board member has five votes. So if you wanted your candidate to win, what you would do is you would elect, you would vote for your strongest candidate, the one you want to win, and then the four weakest candidates. So what you could actually end up having, if you follow gaming theory, is you could end up with one of the weakest candidates securing the most votes. Now, this would be utterly mad, and yet that is the way we're electing our global health leader. Perhaps this just means that WHO is redundant. We don't need it anymore. I'm not sure many people would agree with that, but I think the system definitely does need to be made more transparent to make sure that the decisions are the right ones for global health. Because there are an awful lot of strong candidates in the field and they all have, well, lots of them have good public health experience and good policies that they should be allowed to debate and talk about in the open. Now, if we were a national newspaper, we would come out and choose our own candidate. If we were the New York Times, we'd say, vote for whoever we would say vote for. And any newspaper in any country would do the same. So, Hannah, what do you think? Should The Lancet come out and say, vote for X, Y or Z? I think we, we are a campaigning journal and we have a history of backing issues in which we believe strongly. I think we should separate our journalistic coverage and keep the coverage of the Director General election campaign as balanced as possible. But I think we should put our views on our sleeve and show our audience what we think. So over the next couple of months, we are going to be looking at each candidate with a pretty critical eye, going to look at what they could contribute. We need to come up with a job description for what exactly the Director General of WHO should be able to do. It seems to us that uh, Director General should have uh, public health experience of actually running a health system. They should understand what's going on in low and middle income countries, have some first-hand experience of that. They should also be able to understand the importance of science in public health and have a research background. They need to be a fantastic communicator. They need to be able to show that they can work collaboratively with individuals, with governments, with peoples to really, really make a difference for global health, but at the country level. So which of the candidates is going to be able to do that and who should we vote for? We will vote for somebody in the end at The Lancer. I think Hannah's absolutely right. That is something we should do. So let the debate begin. Thank you, Richard and Hannah. Earlier, I spoke to Dr. Vicenza Navarro, lead author of a public health paper on the consequences of the political agenda of governing parties for the health of populations. So, Dr. Navarro, this is quite an unusual study looking at the complex relationship between political parties, their policies and public health outcomes. Could you tell us a bit about the aim of the study and how you conducted it? This was a two-year study carried out by European Research Network with scholars from Sweden, Germany, Italy, Great Britain and Spain. And that was part of the study, the one that we have published in The Lancet. And the other ones were case studies in all these different countries that do represent different political traditions. It includes a very extensive description of different case studies. Not many studies have been done to focus on politics. Most of the studies focus on policy, but not much has been done in terms of relating politics with policy. So that is what, uh, what we did. As we mentioned in the article, uh, what we did was to 
Look at uh, from 1950 to year 2000, what was the party that had governed those countries for a longer period of time? We follow a methodology that is very well known in political science, and that uh, that was the first step. So we grouped the countries according the political uh, tradition. And then we look at the policies that these countries did develop, and finally how those policies did impact the health of the population. How did the four major political traditions differ? You have four different major political traditions that you've classed countries yeah. in in the study. How did they differ in their policies? In terms of the policies, the key issue is the redistribution of resources, of which income is a very important one. It's not the only one, however. But in that respect, what we did was to see how committed the parties are to redistribute resources in society. And that was very important because at the end, the critical issue was the relationship between redistribution, inequalities, and health outcomes. Now, put in that way, we have a gradient of commitments to redistribution of resources, starting with the social democratic parties, followed by the Christian democratic parties, followed by the liberals, liberals in the European sense of the meaning of liberal, and then the countries that have suffered right-wing dictatorships of very conservative authoritarian governments like Greece, Portugal, and Spain, Southern Europe. And what we saw was that gradient of commitment, how the different traditions emphasized the way of affecting that redistribution. So that the social democratic countries, let's say the northern European countries, let's choose Sweden as a representative country in that family of countries. In Sweden, there's a very big emphasis on services, so that in that respect, services play a very important role in redistributing resources. Encouraging women into the labor force, so if you have a very extensive child care center networks and you have home care services and all the type of services that are oriented towards the families, and when we say families, we really mean women, that support the involvement of women in the labor force, that has very, very important impact in redistributing resources in society. In the Christian democratic countries, they rely more in social transfers than not in services. So, for example, the help of the family takes place in terms of transferring funds for uh, the family, depending on the number of children or things of this type. Now, the liberal tradition has been more distant from the public involvement, not only the health sector, but other sectors. And finally, the Southern European countries uh, have gone through a long period of very conservative uh, authoritarian governments that have not been very sensitive towards social issues. And therefore, the labor market is very deregulated and the welfare state was very undeveloped. Now, this last group of countries, when democracy came about, they change quite considerably, catch up uh, with uh, liberal countries, for example. That is the case of Spain. According to your analysis, what were the effects of redistribution on health outcomes? Well, that is, uh, I think that is the most important variable. So in that respect, those countries that have less inequalities have better health indicators. That is very clear with infant mortality. Northern European countries, for example, have done much better in reducing infant mortality. And in some degree, the statistical potency is not so strong like infant mortality, 
But life expectancy is also sensitive to the redistribution, although, as you know, uh, life expectancy depends on the age-specific mortality and therefore depends a little bit of the demographics of the population. But still, I think that uh, if you want to improve the health of a country, try to diminish inequalities, including income inequality. Thanks to Dr. Vicenza Navarro. Also in this week's issue, there is an article on a potential new and affordable diagnostic test for tuberculosis, proteomic fingerprinting, a technique that identifies proteins in the blood particular to TB, could be used to develop a new diagnostic test for the disease. In many developing countries at the moment, sputum smear microscopy is the only available and affordable diagnostic test, but this test can detect only about 50-60% to 60% of positive cases at best. With this new technique, by using a combination of four biomarkers, the researchers achieved a diagnostic accuracy of up to 78%. And finally, the lead editorial this week states that a new debate on the US healthcare system is long overdue. Recent polls show that Americans across the board are increasingly concerned about their healthcare system. One survey found that two in five adults reported having serious problems paying for their health insurance or healthcare, and the same number of people reported having serious problems getting appointments to see a doctor when they were ill without going to an emergency room. The editorial states, A new debate is long overdue. US voters are worried and they want a comprehensive solution not tinkering. And they want a solution for all Americans, not just a few. They are looking for leadership. Well, that was all for this week. Thanks for listening and I hope you will join us again next week.